welcome to Tales from the Lost Armada, and I am your host, Ricardo Cabral. In this episode, we hear from Roger Valine, who served as president and CEO of Vision Service Plan for 16 years. During his tenure, VSP experienced enormous growth and changes to its business operation. When he retired in 2006, VSP was the largest managed vision care plan in the world with more than 2.8 billion in annual revenue, a huge leap from when he began as a management trainee in 1973. Valine is a native Sacramentan and graduate of Christian Brothers High and California State University, Sacramento. In this episode, we focus mainly on his time at VSP and the many positive changes the company undertook during his time as the corporate leader. I am proud to note that Roger and I share a common lineage. We're both grandsons of the Rogers family that lived and farmed in the South Sacramento section known as The Pocket. Enjoy. So we're with Roger Belline. So that leads us into VSP. Um, you described having worked for Jemco. You graduated from Sac State. That was what, 73? Same year January 73. I, okay. I graduated. Uh, actually, again, Marie played a huge part of this section of my life, too. Marie was working for California Vision Service as a bookkeeper when I was in my senior year of college. And so I remember being at, at her office one night when she was, after hours, typing a term paper for me on Karl Marx. Oh. My major was sociology. Uh, and the, the president of the company, John O'Donnell, was still there. And he came out and introduced himself. We talked for a few minutes. Seemed like a nice guy. And then Marie asked me to be her date at the 1972 Christmas party for California Vision Service, which was held at the executive airport, uh, the little restaurant there. I can't think of the name of it right now, but at any rate, the Aviator, I think it's called. Um, and so that, that night, John and his wife, Patty, asked if they could sit at our table, the table that Marie and I were sitting at. We said, well, certainly. So I got to know John that night, and I really liked him. He was a good, smart guy, good business guy. And then I, a week later, I asked Marie to marry me. Two weeks later, I graduated from college, and I began interviewing around town, and they, uh, I had one offer. Your major was what again? My major, well... I changed my mind several times. But first of it, first off, it was pre-med at UC Davis, and then I, uh, then when I went in the reserves, Air Force Reserves, I changed it to sociology and criminal justice because I thought I'd be like a probation officer or a counselor of some sort. And then about midway through my junior year, I decided no, I want to be in business. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to change my major again. I just wanted to get the ticket of graduation and, and, and get out. So I wanted to be in some form of a of a business. Um, so the offer I had, though, was going to require me to move to uh, Cincinnati uh, for their management training course. And I had no interest whatsoever in doing that. Marie didn't either. So I called John O'Donnell with no aspiration of having a job there, but just to get his counsel on where I should be interviewing based on who I am and what I wanted to do and our family. And so we met for dinner one night on a Wednesday night for two or three hour dinner. And uh, it was terrific. And about four days after that, uh, a memo went out through the company. The company was very small at that time. There's only like about 25 people uh, that there'll be a management training, a management training position opening up for a college graduate. That's what it said. And uh, and they were going to begin accepting resumes. So. Marie told me about that. I worked on my resume with Marie that weekend, had it sent and uh, delivered on Monday. And then I went through three different interviews. So I didn't, for months, I didn't get the offer for the job until, gosh, probably May of 73. Because uh, I started around, around June 14th, 1973 as a management trainee, which I found later on really meant sales representative. It was never part of the interview process. I didn't plan on being in sales, but I was. I wanted to do whatever John wanted me to do. And, uh, and it turned out being a, uh, a great fit. Uh, it was a little bit intimidating. We made call mainly on labor unions to interest them in negotiating for vision care benefits and hopefully choosing our plan. So I was, you know, a 24-year-old guy 
uh, driving throughout the 48 northern counties of California, talking to labor union men who are always, you know, twice my age, if not more. So I'm uh, going places I'd never been to before, talking to people I'd never met before about a subject they'd never heard of before. Yeah. So there was a lot of, I don't yeah. know, some people would have anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but the great thing was that John was there, who was also very active in sales for the company, kind of coached me along as I was wondering if I was doing things right or wrong. I talked to him about it, and he'd either affirm I was doing the right thing or he'd give me a hint to try something different. And I was supposed to call on small groups, like under a thousand employees, but that just didn't last long. I kept running into people that had an interest, and I didn't want to ask permission to, to, to change places with somebody else. So I just kept running with it, and it, it worked. Yeah. John used to ask me each year in those early years what I would like to make during the review time, and uh, that lasted for about I don't know. Six years, I guess it was, until he finally stopped you asking. Monetarily, what do you want to make yeah. this year? Yeah, what do you think you want to make the next year? And so after six years, that's, that stopped because whatever. Uh, you were exceeding your goals, in other words? I guess, I guess. And my dad, you know, remember how my dad had asked concerns about me taking this job. Uh, not real concerns, but just he thought it would just be a, a better career path to stay with Lucky Stores and be, become a manager and so on. So I, I guess I must have told my dad what I made each year from time to time. And eventually, I mean, only after about 10 years or eight, nine, eight years, my dad said, Raji, you got to tell him you don't want any more money. You, you're making plenty of money right now. You don't need any more money. And I'm saying, well, thanks, Dad. I'll think I'll, about it. <laughs> appreciate your input. <laughs> now, there's also a story similarly. Um, you're driving in a car with... Frank Rogers, my mother was there. I assume your parents were there, probably grandma. Yeah. I don't remember the story. What oh, happened? Well, yeah, you, R- you, remind me. So I think grandpa probably turned to you and said, hey, Rog, how you doing that new job, you know? Yeah. Are you making some good money? <laughs> and you said. <laughs> I don't remember this. I really don't remember this. I'm sorry. Tell me. Well, I, want... I made more than the governor last year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. Well, that that had that took a while because I remember my first goal was to make twenty five thousand dollars a year. I mean, sometime to make twenty five thousand dollars a year because when you're making seven fifty a month, that seemed like a, a big thing. So you get closer to that. Then it was, I want to make fifty thousand dollars a year because that's what the governor of California makes. Uh, I don't know why I was so government oriented versus not business oriented. But anyway, that became like my next goal to to get there. And then after that, it was. The president of the United States, because in those days, I think the person made two fifty or something, two hundred thousand yeah. dollars a year. I think something like that. Yeah. So at, at any rate, that, <laughs> that rem- I forgot about that. But thanks for reminding me about My that little. Mother was really impressed. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I was too, but <laughs> but Grandpa was impressed. That was the best part. Of- <laughs> you did what? <laughs> you know, it told. It gave him some idea how how lucrative that position could be. Yeah. Which I thought was cool. That was a yeah. good way of explaining it. <laughs> so, t- talk about the promotions you received leading up to when you became VP of Sales, and who was the main competition for that role? By the way, do you remember? To become to advance forward as in sales with the company, VP of Sales. Yeah. Well, it. it um, I, I start off. We were California Vision Service, right? And but then we began expanding somewhat regionally we uh we expanded up to um nevada uh because there was a we sold our first uh casino i remember uh harris and so we needed to go set up a doctor network and so on and at any rate in in the late 70s uh it became more clear that there needed to be a national network to provide vision care programs to national opportunities like negotiations with auto workers and in the early days there were like about eight organizations like us they were all not-for-profit they were all started by optometrists in the various states and we would get together annually to talk about what we're doing and how we're doing uh, try to learn from one another uh, and so what we decided then is that those eight of us would expand regionally and we would even help try to start other 
plans in states that had nothing. So we would have a network of 50, 50 states of uh, participating doctors, et cetera. So we expanded to California, Nevada, Oregon, Hawaii. That was our four-state region. Uh, and in total, there became 18 vision service plans throughout the U.S. We had the name VSP. We owned that and the trademark. And we licensed the other 17 entities in its use so we would all look the same. From a marketing standpoint, that was strategic. That yeah. was a good move. Yeah, but we had in the early days, we didn't have any intention no, of uh, being national, actually. Yeah. And then it wasn't until 1985 that it became clear to us that if we weren't making it happen, we would never be as as good as the company as that we needed to be to compete with national competitors. And so, so that's when we informed the other 17 vision service plans that we would. We were very interested in expanding and having them consolidate within our company. And it wasn't kind of like a hostile thing. It was like, who would like to that to consider? Let's begin talking and see if we can work it out. So when I think about, about my career, uh, I was a sales representative, and then I became a sales manager. And that meant because I had several sales representatives reporting to me all in Northern California, uh, uh, primarily Northern California. And that lasted, see, so I started in 73, I became a sales manager in 75. Um, 1978, I think it was, that's when I became a VP of sales. So then I had all of our sales representatives uh, reporting under me at that point in time. Size-wise, when I joined in 73, we were doing $10 million a year, and I was our 30th employee. And then in addition then to growing the states that we were in, uh, from a sales standpoint, then Part of my job in 85 was to go work with the other 17 VSPs and see if I could talk them into joining us. And that worked pretty good. Uh, our first one was, uh, we called it Eastern Vision Service Plan. It was New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Those were actually three different VSPs at one time. Uh, Mid-Atlantic was in Washington, D.C., Maryland, Vermont. No, not Vermont, Maryland. Uh Southeast came next, South Carolina. You, you personally are making the sales coordination or the, getting these guys to come on board? Yeah. I'm, I'm starting off with meeting with the CEOs, talk about what their aspirations were, what our aspirations were. Do I see or does he, they were all guys, do, do I see or does he see a role that he could play in our expanding company or does he see retirement uh, as an option that would be more adventurous to him uh, rather than continue working. And so it was, the, you know, one way it was just kind of the weaker ones that came to us very first because they really, they were good people. They just didn't have the resources to make themselves grow. And we didn't have much money either, but we had more than them. Uh, when we began our national expansion in 85, we had grown to have $50 million of like net worth. And I remember we blew through half of that money before it started turning around again. Uh, because you would make quite an investment. You'd go to an area, you'd hire a bunch of people, you'd train them, take two or three years of calling on the marketplace before they begin producing results like a harvest. Uh, and so by the time we get a, a new area making money or stop losing money, we I'd talk someone else into coming on board. And so then you'd make that investment in that next section. Anyway, it was just... It was terrific until we got down to eight. There were eight of us. Uh, and I, I remember at that point in time, uh, I I was changed from sales to, I was still actually involved, but I became the president of all of our companies outside of California. Uh, the subsidiaries? Yeah, all the subsidiary businesses. And I still reported to John. I mean, that was yeah. he was clearly the head of the company. And so when we got down to the final eight, by the time we got to 85, 1985, we were 100 million of annual revenue and they were 50 million. So they were half our size. Number two was half our size. And the next uh, ones at 28, 23, 22, and then God always down, always down to five. Was number two at that point? Two was uh, Ohio Vision Service Plan. It had eight states that it, uh, it had in, in its network. Um, uh, mid Mid-America uh, uh, was Chicago and the Midwestern states. That was also big. Florida was big. Um, so at the end of the day, though, not I wasn't able to do it. Uh, 16 
no, 15 of the other 17 came with us. Two would not. Uh, Florida would not, and Pennsylvania would not. Uh, they wanted to maintain their independence, and we said, well, that'd be fine. And so after many, many years I mean, of, of talking, we said, okay, well, then we have to begin competing with one another. And so we gave them two years' notice that they would have to find a new name to call themselves because we were going to be opening up in Florida as Vision Service Plan and begin marketing there directly. So that's how that happened. Uh, so that really didn't come to come. So I became president of all of VSP, CEO of VSP in 19. 19- 90 uh and the whole 50 state network though didn't all come together till about 98 because i remember when i took over 1990 at that point in time we were a total of 250 million of annual revenue at that point and i remember we had a, we had a big celebration of when we had a billion of revenue 1998 that's when we had a big party and had balloons over our buildings and celebrated our employees and what we were what we collectively were to accomplish uh, that was in definitely in 1998. One thing, um, kind of a challenge to you. I remember, uh, I think it was 1993 when the Justice Department, you know, talked to you about the most fa- uh, favored nations clause in the contracts, and they. Yeah. Okay. You want to talk about how that? Uh... Yeah, we had we had a clause in our contra- uh, contractual agreement with doctors uh, called the most favored nations clause that the lowest fee they would accept from some other vision care plan would be the same fee that we would pay them. So like we couldn't pay, we wouldn't pay them a hundred dollars and they would be accepting 75 hours from someone else. If that was the thing, we would be able to reduce our payment to them to $75. And we were fairly dominant uh, in the marketplace because vision care was so small and medical plans really weren't paying much attention to vision care as a potential benefit source. Dental was still, the most significant growth thing for them. Uh, but then eventually some competitors we had uh, felt that was unfair because it would make uh, providers less likely to want to join their network if it would reduce their, all their income from VSP. So uh, one way or another, they, that got re, that got the Justice Department uh, looked into that. Uh, we didn't go to court. We could have gone to court to fight it, but we decided we could, we could live without it. So we changed our formula for paying our doctors uh, and the most favored nations clause uh, was no longer a provision within it uh, to make that risk go away. So there wasn't a, a, a real dent in the uh, the revenue stream, in other words? No, it, didn't affect, it didn't affect revenue whatsoever. If anything, it would affect what would have been affect expenses, you know, claim costs, because uh, it would be, hypothetically, we could have been paying higher fire fees, but we didn't we didn't change our fees from what we had to our doctors. We just said we weren't going to be governed by most favored but nations they, at that point they on. They in turn were then allowed the other plans were allowed to come in and undercut. Right? Sure. Yeah. So, they, that, so that didn't have an effect on your overall Oh no, I'm sure it had some effect because we had competition. Uh locally there was another not for profit called Medical Eye Care Service. That was a um California based company. And then there were nationwide companies, Davis Vision Care, different ones came along. Um, uh, eventually, Lens Crafters uh, got acquired, and, and they came up with their own Vision Care program. And, and they came, they're probably number two competitor and because they had a network of stores, and then they had a network of doctors. And so they, they had a kind of an attractive package. Yeah. At some point, you had other issues to deal with that were pretty challenging. I'm, I'm just surmising. Uh, so you had this wonderful room where you had the two airline seats. Yeah. And you said, you you know, I like to go there and just think. Yeah. I do my best thinking on a plane, so that's why you had them installed. Yeah. Did you ever go in there with the intent and have a conversation with your dad? Dad, I need some help. I, I don't know what to do on this thing. No. Yeah. Never did. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're right. I, I, I did I did have some of my most creative thoughts when I was traveling around the United States because you'd you do all the. You were prepared for where you were going to go. You do all the reading that could wait a week or two till you had time to get caught up in your reading, and so then my mind would be open up to kind of just what ifs, and so I'd often come back with these trips with a whole bunch of different things for us to think about doing. So I did. I wanted to have that environment in my office, and so when we were building our corporate office in the 19, uh, eight, 1989, um, Marie and I went to uh, a facility down in. Hollister, California, that warehoused old airplane 
parts and things from and sold them to third world airlines and that's why i found my two american airline first class seats that went into my office in reality i never used those two seats very much to sit down and think although it was it was a fun little thing to have yeah. uh, we would have like on bring your child to work day we would uh put kids in the seats with captain's hats and we had uh, windows on the side of the wall that looked like sky and we would take photographs uh, uh, them being the pilot of the VSP seats. Now I think I, if I remember correctly the, the new corporate headquarters you guys had built there uh, originally was on a street called Currency Drive. Yeah. And then you either said that's probably not a good name for a nonprofit like us. So yeah. So, uh, so that's exactly correct. It was only a three-block street, but I couldn't see a not-for-profit vision care plan being on Currency Drive. And so I went and I talked to our neighbors, uh, and one of them was Franklin Fund, a big, big company. Yeah. And they said, no, uh, no, a corporate won't allow them to change the name of the street. And I said, well, who a corporate? And they said, uh, CEO. I said, Okay. What's his name? And so they gave it, he was Charlie. I just can't think it's Charlie's last. Charlie was his first name. Anyway, I go, I go call the guy and I told him what was going on, what I wanted to do. And he says, why, why, why are you calling me, Roger? And I told him what was said. He says, Roger, you can call that name anything you want. Makes, I'm perfectly happy to do whatever you'd like to do there on those three blocks. So it was uh, it was remarkable. First off, the city told us what we had to do. We had to go get approval from all the all the addresses okay. on that street. And then if they if I got that, which I thought they they thought I probably couldn't do, uh, then they would change it. So we did. We changed it to Quality Drive. Uh, so the thing, you know, and that's the part of the thing I talked to Charlie about. I said, you know, currencies can go up and down, but no one always wants wants quality. So and he. he you like that too. Yeah. <laughs> the next one I wanted to have you touch base on. It's a good story. 1997, the SP decides they're going to start a fund for students, site for students, mm-hmm. $7 million. And so you go to a conference and you happen to run into a former general and uh, something interesting happened. You want to tell us? Yeah, this was a, it was called the President's Summit. Uh, it was back in, uh, let's see, Philadelphia. And so there were four living presidents that were attending it. The current president at the time, uh, at the time was uh, Clinton. And there's really three segments of pe- people they were trying to get together. There were the not-for-profit organizations that help people in need. There were the cities and counties and governments that help people in need and coordinate. And then they wanted corporate, the third group. And the, the, the desire of this was to how can we make these three lanes of organizations kind of come together, work more effectively to help. So we got actually invited back because we, we had our site for students program already existed at the time. And where that, what that meant for years, we didn't have much money uh, for year in the early years, we would withhold money that was due doctor because that was our only way of uh, staying solvent. So for example, if we, uh, the payment that we had for a doctor was $5,000 to pick a number. The services, uh, we might withhold a minimum of 5% to as much as 25% of that based on what our 90-day solvency was. And the doctors agreed to this because they supported VSP. They started it and they knew that, oh, the, the, the reason why it happened, you go sell a vision care program to a company or a group, and a thousand employees and their spouses and their kids all can go out and get their eye care, and many of them do all at once. So within the first month or two, you might get all these kind of claims, and you only have one or two months of premium to pay for it. Uh, so there is a real imbalance. I mean, it might take you, you know, two years to kind of get to break even on a on a on a brand new group. Uh, so as we got bigger and stronger, we would reduce withholding to a predictable number, and eventually got down to zero, uh, and then. Although we didn't have an obligation to do, though, we had a moral obligation. We began refunding to doctors what we had previously withheld in the early years when we had nothing. Until we kind of got pretty darn strong. Uh, and and so then I felt we had a, a, a good reserves to take care of whatever we got coming at us. And that's when we thought 
what would be a great thing for us to do? And it was to help kids, help kids who had no other means of obtaining eye care. So not people that are under welfare or under Medicaid, because they can get that through their health, through their coverage. But it was others. And so we work with the Boys and Girls Clubs. We work with National Council of La Raza. We work with the Nurses Association. Um, and we asked them to identify anybody that they thought could benefit by a vision exam or your eyewear because they may have been struggling in school. And we would allow, we, we would give them our benefit form and a listing of doctors for the area, just like any one of our thousands of clients. And then they could go get the care and we would pay the doctor back like any other VSP patient. So that was our site for students program. And on average, when, we, and when we began it, we would help 50,000 kids a year. It costs us around seven to $8 million a year to do it. So that's what we were, that's what we were, why we were invited back there and, and talk about these kind of things with other people like us. While I was there though, I mean, you, there were like, you know, four or five or six different kind of we'll call it classes you can go to during a day and they could have anywhere from 500 to a thousand people in a class. So as I'm on the phone going, waiting to go into a class, I see Colin Powell, uh, going into the same one I was going to go into with two security guys. And, uh, and so he goes and he sits in the very back row and a guard is on one entrance of the row toward the middle. There's another guard that sits behind him or stood behind him, I guess it was. And there's no one in the row, no one either side of him. And so I say to myself, well, I can sit anywhere I want to in this place. I want to, I want to sit next to him. So I go in and I pull out the chair to the side of him and I step in there and I sit down. And so I just sit there, not saying nothing. But I got really motivated at that report, at that meeting. I wanted to know, you know, there's something more that we could do. What I decided to do, I decided we let every one of our employees who wanted to have a day to go help somebody, help their school, help anybody. We don't try to say what's the right organization or what's the right kind of cause, but we'll pay you like you're working and you just need to schedule it. And so I, on my itinerary, uh, for my way home, I wrote a little note to Colin Powell about how impressed I was with him and what was happening and that it motivated me to do this other thing to begin this day of volunteering for our employees one day a year, uh, for every, for every employee. And so I go to hand him my little note, on the, on the back of my itinerary and the guard puts his hand out to stop it. And Colin Powell says, no, 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 it's okay. So he reads it and, uh, and he smiles and we began having a, a little talk, not a big talk, maybe talk for two, three, four minutes. And then the session was over and he said, Roger, do you mind if I keep this? I said, no, no, no problem. I know what flight I'm on. So, uh, so then there's another session I go to. And then there was a closing thing happening at the place where the government first started in Philadelphia. And so as I'm waiting to go on one of the buses to head back there, some woman comes up that I didn't know. And she gives me a kiss to the cheek. And I said, do I know you? And she said, no. But Colin Powell uh, told us about you. I said, okay. <laughs> so, well, maybe that's what he was talking about. So, so then at the closing ceremony, he's up on this platform talking to everybody about their goodbye and everything and uh, he brings out this my itinerary and he uh, he reads my note to him and then he says to the cameras on there he says now roger uh this you made america's promise and we got it on camera so you got to keep it and uh, it's kind of cute it's kind of a cute thing so i, I never had i didn't have a lot more interaction with him i did have one more time really that i i called him before before you get into that yeah. what position did he hold was he still a general? No, at that point in time, he was he was retired from the military. I think he was just like an, a, a person, of esteemed person at that yeah. point in time. I right. think you know, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So, so he was also on the. So years later, maybe two years or three years later, the Sacramento Boys Club built a brand new building, and they were going to have a dedication, and they and and Colin Powell's on the board of. Boys and Girls Clubs throughout the United States. And so they approached me and said, would it be possible for you to ask Colin Powell if he would come out for our opening of our new building, be our commencement speaker? 
I said, I don't really know him that well, but I could try. So I, I called him, and uh, I don't know if I spoke with him or I just spoke with the, one of his lieutenants, but they said he was going to be up in Portland uh, that day or the day before. If I could get a plane to pick him up, um, he'll do it. So I called uh, Rayleigh's. Rayleigh's has a private plane in Rayleigh's stores, and they were uh, all good with providing their jet to go pick him up. <laughs> so I wanted, uh, we went, I, I wasn't, let's see, was I in that car? No, I, I wasn't in the car to pick him up. We had a little, like a limo we picked him up in. And then we brought him to the Boys and Girls Club. And then I needed to take him back to Mather Air Force Base at such and such a time when he was catching his other aircraft back to wherever he was going to go. And that's not too far from VSP. Uh, it was like maybe a mile from VSP. And so I I wanted to know if he might be able to want to have time to stop by CVSP. And he said, sure. Well, I let people know this might happen, no guarantee. So by the time he got there, we had, I don't know, 1,500 people out there in the backyard. <laughs> so we get there and hit. Uh, he was signed. He said a few words. He signed autographs. So it was just kind of a fun, fun, fun little day. Yeah. This is good stuff, but I'm going to go ahead and just mention some more business things. September 1998, VSP signed the railroad union with 160,000 employees. And I'm just curious, was that like a huge, huge contract? Oh, yeah. That's a big contract. Yeah. The, the single biggest contract we ever had was actually the state of California. Because the state of California has... Not only the state employees, then we also had the highway patrol, then we also have the universities, and so you add all that. That's that's by far the biggest segment of people, but yeah, those were like huge contracts that were so uh, so good for us, uh, particularly the railway because that had employees all over the United States, yeah. and so that really spread up, spread the word of us being a national company. Tell me if you think this is a true statement. The two qualities could be two, could be more than that that gave VSP sort of like you made you an upper shelf type company was one innovation and two this form of philanthropic nature which sounds like a lot of it came from you when you were in charge but yeah I mean, yeah I don't think the philanthropic did I mean I think what made this have that panache was uh that we wanted people to have the very best service possible so it was the easiest one to use. Eventually, we you know we didn't have send in reforms or request cards that just go directly to the doctor. We had to think of a way that we could communicate to the doctor all the things about the plan. Um, so it, it was like easy to do business with. That was part of it. I think the other part of it was that we would solve any problem anyone ever had. There was nothing that we wouldn't do. And if we had to go, person wasn't happy with their glasses, no problem. Let's make them another pair of glasses. If they still weren't happy and they weren't happy with the doctor, no problem. Let's go find another doctor that will, and we would pay for those additional services. Now, statistically, it happened so small. It was something like two-tenths of 1% of the time that would take place. So in the big scheme of things, it was not a very expensive solution process to really become unique compared to the hassle of medical care or the hassle of dental care uh, and all the hoops that go through it. Now, part of that was our customer service people, great people. We had 600 customer service reps. But even though we were willing to solve a person's problem, we had to make them fill out a form of what went wrong, and then from there we would go talk to the doctor and then we would eventually solve the problem. But there was steps that people had to do. And we took a good look at what the cost was of our system of managing that versus the ultimate cost of us just paying for the additional services. And it became clear to us that we were wasting more money managing than doing it. So we went to the customer service reps and we said, there's nothing that you cannot say yes to that a customer asked for. And at first, it really troubled many of them because they, they wanted to have limits. They wanted to know where it could begin and where it could end so they would just like feel comfortable. And we said, it won't end until the customer is completely happy, uh, no matter what it is. Now, I'm sure there's some people that probably abuse this on that, um, but it was never a, a consequential number because that never, that never came to my mind. But that, that, I think, Rick, is what makes it kind of be unique because uh, nothing... No, nothing in healthcare 
that easy to do work, you know, do business with. Exactly. Now, did you guys borrow that from some other large corporation that you said, hey, they're doing this that we ought to try it in our field? I can't remember another company that did yeah. that. I really don't. Sounds like you guys innovated that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. Fortune uh, had a listing came out of the 100 best places to work in America. And so that first year, I, I, I read Fortune, and I saw that. And so I, I read about these companies because it laid out some of the things that they did that were unique that made them a good place to work. And I read it for the purpose of learning from it. You know, what, what else could we do to make this place? By, by the way, BSP was not an easy place to work. It was demanding. We had high expectations of people's performance. The only the, What made it unique is that we, we treated people right. Um, uh, and we cared for them. And we, we wanted some balance in their life between work and family and all the other things. But it wasn't like you, you didn't come and coast. If you were a person coasting and not doing your work, you'd be counseled about that. And we, you'd give additional training. And at the end of the day, if you had whatever, a month or three months to change your behavior and you chose not to, then you just chose to go work someplace else because we wouldn't tolerate yeah. less than good behavior. So at any rate, when I read through that, I went to our HR department. I said, uh, how do you compete for this? I said, uh, I'd like us to try to compete for it. I think it'd be a great thing for us to get this. It would kind of validate for our people what, what we got here, probably help us keep some people here that otherwise would entice to go someplace else because they would know this is kind of unique. Uh, maybe even help us interest more people to come work for us that don't know much about BSP. And I said, what's the worst thing that could happen? We don't make the list. Well, if we don't make the list, no one would know that. So there's no downside to me. There's only upside to this. And so so they did the research and they found out that there's, uh, you had to be a certain size. I think it may be over 500 employees or something like that. Um, and the way it works is that they come up with a survey that your employees need to complete, uh, a segment of your employees. Uh, they tell you the number of employees based on, the size of your organization. I think we had to choose 250 of our employees uh, to do it. Uh, and then that survey gets tabulated by a company that Fortune worked with, which is called Great Places Great Places to Work. So they tabulate the results of that. And then one-third of the results, uh, excuse me, that was, I get it right. That was two-thirds of the reason you made it. One-third was your response to the questions um, Fortune gave you about your business and really how well you portray yourself in the, in the marketing response back. So, again, we had no idea what our employees would say. The first year we tried it, we made the list. We were the 55th best company to work for in America that year. And we made it for nine consecutive years in a row. The highest ranking we ever got was the seventh best company in the United States. So that was something I was really quite also proud of. Uh, uh, it just felt good to be associated with something that's good for doctors, it's good for patients, it's yeah. good for clients, and it's good for the employees. And yeah, so employees. that made like made a lot of sense to me. So I think we may have bounced around a little teeny bit. But think about it. Just to be one of 100 yeah, best sure. companies in the United States is not bad. So... Yeah, that yeah. that was part of it. I was handed a note here to ask you about the circle of success. Again, partially because, you know, we were this newer company that and not very many people had vision care in the early days. We would often have a prospective group that was really serious and thinking about coming to see us. We'd have them have uh, a tour of our office, um, go show them customer service, show them claims. But in the circle of success area, that's where we displayed the brochures of a segment of our accounts from all kinds of different businesses and walks of life. So uh, the prospect could kind of see the breadth of organizations that, that had our program. But also they could see the other things that were important to us. We had high goals, uh, expectations of satisfying doctors, patients, clients, and even employees. So 50% of management's bonus, 12.5% for each category, was based on hitting those satisfaction goals. Again, doctors, patients, clients, and employee satisfaction working for BSP. The other 50% of management's goals was the not the profit, but the administrative efficiency of us running our business. So if we could 
reduce what our cost per claim was to administer the program, that would be good. That would mean we're getting more and more efficient. It wasn't necessarily that we would spend less on administration than we did the year before because we may have grown 20%. So if we hadn't done things, it would have been much more expensive. So that that lasted for management for, I don't know, five or six, seven years. And then decided that actually I wanted to have the same thing for every employee in the company. So every every single employee had that same bonus. But it was a little different for rank and file employees. They could start off with the idea of having three days a week for satisfying, three days pay, uh, hitting satisfaction goals. And that was for clients, patients, and doctors. We didn't, <laughs> you didn't ask employees how satisfied they would be about themselves. Uh, thought that might be a biased answer. Uh, and then they, we would give them two days of pay if we hit our administrative efficiency. So they get an extra week's pay. That was, that was the concept. That was a little bonus. And it worked great. We didn't always hit everyone, but we almost, almost always did. But then I still didn't think we were managing as strong as we could because he, you could tell by the time you get to the third quarter or the beginning of the fourth quarter, I would begin seeing expenses moving up, admin expenses going up because it, it was clear that we were going to make our goal and there was still budget to be used. So hypothetically, why not use it? That might be someone's thought. That would be government's thought. Uh, and I didn't want that be a thought at VSP. I want us to get as efficient as possible every year. So then we created an added bonus for both employees as well as management. And that was that if we can get below our goal, we would give them a portion of all that money saved. I think it was 25%. So just illustratively, let's say we, we wanted to get our cost per claim down to $10 per claim. And, uh, and, and that would give them their normal bonus but if we get it down to nine dollars per claim well then they're going to get a quarter of that dollar for all those claims that we pay yeah. and so where our original goal sometimes was for rank and file people to get one week's extra pay uh there were years and they would get three weeks extra pay uh and so that would be something actually we would show prospective groups to help them understand what we incentivize our people is treating people right uh, and 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 there were not easy goals to hit. Uh, to, we for years, you know, we would get we we counted excellent, very good, and good as satisfied, and poor and or fair and poor as dissatisfied. But when we kept getting consistently satisfied, like at the ninety four point eight or ninety five point nine or whatever it was, it, it, it got harder to try to figure out what's the right goal. Uh, and so I decided that good isn't good enough. You want to be a legendary company. Only count excellent and very good because uh, everything else is yeah. not very you know substantial. So we had to change our we had to change our goal targets because that's harder to get to. But today, I, I, to my knowledge, today this still this still goes on today, and for patients, for clients, and for employees, I, it's ninety one percent excellent and very good. Uh, doctors is a little less, like eighty four percent, because it's harder to please a doctor. Yeah. You, they would be more pleased if we paid them a lot more per claim, uh, and that would that make them real happy. But then I would have less claims for them because I would not have as much business. So there's a little yeah. balance act. Well, in two thousand six, when you retired, these were the highlights that you cited. Uh, VSP was the largest vision care plan in the world. Huh. That's interesting. Had revenues over $2 billion. Yeah, 2.8. Coverage of more than 55 million people. Yeah, in the United States. And then you hit the Fortune 100 companies list nine straight times, and number seven was the best, as you've already covered. So, I mean, that was really something to hang your hat on, right? I mean, yeah. you had to feel pretty damn good after your, your, your time was over, and you said, okay, I'm going to turn it over to somebody else. Yeah, yeah I mean, I felt, I felt good then, and I feel... As good now, yeah. Uh, not because not only about the company and the, the way people talk about it that worked there, the kind of things we even simple things we had annual dinner dance where we paid for the employee to come and their husband or wife or girlfriend uh, and had a nice night at a fine hotel downstairs uh, downtown and 
uh, dancing and music, and it was fun. And then in the summer, we'd have a family function. Either it would either be uh, Six Flags for the whole family, or, or it would be water slides day for the whole family, or it would be as simple as a park, uh, or we'd have like amusement things. But also, that was kind of unique. And so it was, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe because it wasn't a absolutely driven for-profit company. Uh, maybe we had a little different focus because uh, it seemed right to me to spend some of this money on the people that make it happen so they'll be inspired to always keep making it happen. But again, it was a demanding place. And I know I, I, I know that the uh, that Fortune 100 thing we talked about, that was an unbelievable additional benefit for recruiting people. Sure. We, I think we ended up getting like 10 times more applicants per position oh, yeah. than we did before. So uh, our, our ability of finding very great people uh, was enhanced. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You're talking about uh, on a corporate level, a meaning uh, not corporate, um, executive level. You guys were mulling over these kinds of ideas. How can we make the employees want to work harder for us and yet feel like they're having a, a good time at this company? I mean, that was one thing you were just... Describing. Yeah, but I wouldn't say harder necessarily. I'd say smarter. Okay. Uh, I mean, although maybe harder could have been part of it, but part of it was management had to have a different philosophy for our company than in most organizations, and we worked on that very beginning in 1990, 91. This, let me let me just throw this out at you. Were you instrumental for in, in introducing that, or was that something that was already part of the VSP? fabric at the executive level and you inherited it saw it and helped to you know magnify. I, I would say this i think vsp i inherited a culture where people were expected to perform well to work hard to treat customers right to treat treat patients right and so on a change not very really a change but that's something that developed and again in an early age uh, we, we were working so hard to get things done and I knew we had a lot of growth coming our way. It was going to make it a lot harder. So I spent, I think I spent two days a week with another executive, uh, my senior VP, and three at, at staff people. And we went to each of the departments of the company to find out what are the core things they do, what's working right, what's working wrong, and why do they do the things they do. And the idea was how can we, in my mind, how can I eliminate some things that are unnecessary mm -hmm. to create space to do more important things? And, <laughs> and it was, uh, I guess, surprising to me. Sometimes I would hear the most onerous procedures they had to follow. And, and I might say, why in the world do we have this requirement? And... More than not, someone might say, because you told me to have it that way. And, you know, it may have been something a person asked me when I was getting a cup of coffee yeah. and it was at the top of the, my mind response because I probably had nine other things I was thinking about that day. And all of a sudden that became in cement. And so it became very, uh, it became clear to me that we needed to make it much more comfortable for employees to challenge the status quo, to challenge policy or to challenge management if they have an idea that they think's better, you know, to not, not, not make them feel like, like they're not a team player, but to embrace it. So then we began actually compensating people for, you know, uh, additional compensation for some of the great ideas they came out with. But more than anything else, what it did, it gave them the ability to, where their supervisor changed the way they do business for the idea of becoming more and more efficient, simple, and quick, really. Uh, and so that happened at an early stage. And I think also that was part of the culture, though, because when you convey to people that they're, they are important to us and you're smarter than us at you're doing your job than we two or three levels above you, I think that feeling of respect that they've earned goes a long way versus most time managers controlling people. They're controlling and, and limiting oh, yeah. them. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's managed the way or the highway. Well, that's that's bullshit, you know. In in 2021, Comstocks did a profile on you. Hmm. Remember when or way back yeah. when Roger was. And so, but in there, 
they got you to admit that you retired earlier than you might have liked to in another lifetime. You know, I retired earlier because, and this is what they quoted you as saying, mm -hmm. um, he thought back on his relationship he'd had with his grandfather and the bonds he hoped to forge with his own grandchildren, and you were quoted as saying, I knew it wouldn't happen if I was a CEO. That's true. I, I felt such an obligation to make sure not only things are going well now, but things will be going well five years from now or 10 years from now or whatever. Yeah. And so that kind of state of mind, I, I work probably on average 40 to 60 hour work weeks. Not always, maybe sometimes 40, but sometimes 80. Uh, and, and it never turned off much. You know, your mind's always working day or night on yeah. on I did. Yeah. Not day or night, but anyway, more than an, an average position would be. Uh, Marie was terrific for me, particularly in the early stages when I was doing too much. And, and she would let me know. And I, now at first I wouldn't really be listening that well. I'm still working on my response to win that discussion thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm all right. Yeah. And I realized a few minutes later, she's absolutely right. So I was like a car that would kind of go off alignment from once in a while and she would bring it back onto alignment. And I'm so delighted she did because that's what allowed me to be a good husband and be a good dad and, and not, I, not miss things. You know, I just felt that at 57, the company was in terrific shape. Uh, it had a good future and that my grandchildren were going to be of an age where I would be able to be able to begin doing more things with them. And I couldn't do that if I'm traveling around the United States or the world or whatever it might be. And, and, and I was, and I was, and my business life was so satisfied. I was satisfied where I was, you know, would I be more satisfied if it, if it doubled? Well, maybe, but who knows what are the consequences so did you make the that. right choice? Oh, I believe I did because I don't have any regrets. Yeah. I mean, I, I thank God every day, you know, for everything that's happened in my life. Sometimes I wonder why I've been so lucky, you know, and why I've been so blessed. Coming out of the shower this morning, I thought of the, the, the phrase from It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. When the angel says, George, you had a wonderful life. <laughs> yeah. You know, and really you have. I have. No you doubt know? about it. Yeah, you have. You know, and, and of course you've made it, but at the same time, you had opportunities some people don't have. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely and, right. And you cashed in on them. You took, them, took advantage of them. But being raised in the family, working on the farm with my dad, yeah. that really helped a lot of things. Because that, you learned how to persevere, uh, not give up, because there's no one that could take your spot. You had to do it. You had to figure out a way of getting it done. So it kind of affected creativity, created perseverance, created drive. And when the ingenuity and when the tractor didn't run you you grabbed a screwdriver and lifted it up and said let's see if we can figure this out yeah we got no nothing to lose and so when i think back in my life and i know i had these little turns maybe other people could have much different lives if they some if they had just taken a a right when they went a left or took, well, took a right instead of just going straight yeah. uh, but for me uh, uh, I don't think I I don't know I, I know it's more than just luck I, I, I understand that I mean I know I work hard at it and all that but still I feel very very lucky for the opportunities that were provided for me <laughs>